You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Kisan, I'm super excited for you to be here on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I want to thank our listeners and everyone that set up this introduction. To start off, can you give us a little bit of background of your career and what you're working on and what you've done up to this point? I spent about 10 years as an M&A advisor working the lower middle market on hospitality and small financial institutions, which gives you the understanding of some of the big pain points of running an M&A process. I was interested in getting into the technology space. One of the things that really intrigued me was the way that software engineers would utilize these project management tools to manage developing software and thought, why not for M&A? We started the company Deal Room in 2012 with an initial focus on improving the diligence management process, which tends to be pretty clunky when you have this Excel tracker requesting a bunch of information from a company you're looking to acquire following up with a bunch of clarification questions. Next thing you know, you're trying to have a conversation on this Excel tracker that you email back and forth 13 times. So we built into that more of the project management workflow, create a lot of efficiency there, naturally progressed to include integration management for corporates on the buy side, and then over time made it into pipeline management. So to where it sits today is a full lifecycle management solution. But that wasn't it. In that journey of working with corporates, one of the things we quickly realized was that no two corporates looked at M&A or acted on M&A the same way and realized that in the industry, there's this bigger underpinning problem of the industry itself being so siloed. There's this big lack of standardization or evidence in the way we do M&A with a friend suggesting to start a podcast. We married that with an idea of utilizing a podcast as a platform to enable practitioners to share lessons learned so that we can in turn look for the patterns, identify what are actually the proven techniques in the industry. And we started documenting this information, created a framework, which led to the book Agile m which was actually based on two specific case studies with Google and Alassia and the way they utilized agile techniques and their M&A approach with great success. And then it evolved it into a full-blown digital media business where today we run events, run a M&A Academy program. And that's what it is today. Most of the stuff is geared towards corporate M&A, the 1 billion plus market cap and private equity backed roll-ups. But it's fun just to build a community around it. Your podcast, how's that experience been? At the time, it was a friend of mine, Andy, who was telling me, hey man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell's a podcast? He said, don't worry about it. It's going to be the next big thing. You just got to do it. I was lucky because I was early enough. That was back in 17. I stood on it for a while and then finally came around and married it with other ideas because we're already doing a bunch of phone calls for research and developing software. One of the things we do well is have a good feedback loop with cohorts of potential customers, existing customers. And essentially, it was just expanding on that. And that started off really slow. This podcast is a long game. I don't think you should think about rewards from it in the, the early years. It should be more about the network, the people you can connect with, because you're changing the dynamics instead of, hey, let me get your time. I'm helping you out. I'm getting your message out there. So you get access to people that would otherwise be nearly impossible to get access to. You develop your communication skills. Those things add a lot of value. The first couple of years, you don't really see anything from it. I think it was the third year, putting a lot more content together, blogs, eBooks, and building our marketing around the podcast. You get into like year four or five, you really start seeing an exponential growth that happens. 
And then that's when you got something cool there that you can figure out some interesting ways when you have the community that, that follows the podcast and how you can best serve the community, understand their problems. And that led to creating additional business lines all based on feedback we'd gather and how we can best serve the community around the podcast. I love talking to people that have podcasts just because you, know, you get to share. I've been having the same experience. I just love the fact that at the very beginning, it goes from you reaching out to get guests to the opposite where people are asking to be a guest on your show. And just you see that transition and how amazing it is. That's the fun part. That's the way you get your sweet victory when that dynamic changes. That led into the Agile M&A book. What is Agile? How is that part of the M&A process? We look at it as a framework. What inspired it was our own engineering team in the early days and the way they would use these agile approaches. They would do stand-up meetings. They would have a priority backlog. They would do retrospectives. And I kept pondering, thinking, this stuff would be good to M&A. Like when we're doing deals, we should have been doing similar type of project management approach. It would make a lot more sense instead of being very plan-driven, where you're creating this massive checklist of all these things to do, which... It doesn't work well in M&A because you start a deal off with very little information. As you continue through the stages of a deal process, you get more and more information. And as you get additional information, that's when you identify additional risks and opportunities that you need to act on. You can't create this comprehensive plan and expect it to run through it and everything to go perfectly fine. It doesn't work that way. It's just very dynamic. Things change, information change, more and more people get involved in the deal. You need to have a model for knowledge transfer. And what was interesting was when you look at the software space and the challenges software engineers had, it was fundamentally similar. You set out to build a piece of software. You have a lot of assumptions about what your end users, what are they specifically going to get out of it? And you create this plan. And then when you go out and build a software and take it to the customer, they start pointing at all these things that are wrong with it. At that point, it is very expensive to make changes and it's going to throw your timelines off. Big bust. The reason the industry adopted Agile was instead of building that big, giant list of requirements, you have this very light outline of saying, hey, we're going to build a software. We're going to have five key things that we're going to build. Users need to log in, they create a profile and and be able to upload documents. We're going to start with the first thing. We're going to prioritize this outline. So we're only going to outline the first one or two things that we're actually going to develop in the near term. And the team acts on that and they are able to deliver that working piece of functionality then they move on because now I can take that feature out, get feedback on it and make sure it's good for the user and then move on. But during that process, if I decide, wait a minute, we don't need this feature. It's just deleting one line off of our plan list. Or if I need to reprioritize, I can move things around easily. And we just progress that way. That agile approach where you're creating a feedback loop, you're responding to the changes as they're happening. We drew parallels with M&A where if we had a management approach where you can respond to changes as they're happening in a deal, so as you identify risk and identify opportunities and can continuously update your project plans, we found that similar benefit. Now you can move a lot quicker, you can reprioritize, and you can realign your teams around those new priorities quickly and make sure that they're staying on top of those highest priority tasks. And just a lot more efficient. The way you even structure your teams when you think of software, the old school ways, you'd have all the backend programmers together in a team, front-end programmers on a team, designers on a team, et cetera. Very inefficient for them to communicate between these groups. Agile team, they're very small. They're cross-functional. You got one backend developer, one front-end developer, one designer, one QA tester. That's your team right there, a little pod of five, six people. 
They move so quickly. Just that little team can go out and produce function on their own, full function and features. And M&A, same thing. Instead of having your typical integration is a good example because they create these massive work streams by function, IT, marketing, sales, et cetera. If you can take the M&A deal, prioritize why we're buying this company, what are the value drivers of this deal and prioritize it, then in turn, build cross-functional teams. Who do you actually need to deliver on that value and build those teams out that way, then execute your integration much more efficient than having the old school structure of having big pillars of, of these functional work streams. Those are basically like the fundamentals of what the agile M&A model is about. Before diving deeper into that and asking what is needed for a successful process, when you bring this idea to, I don't want to say more established, but maybe boutique investment banks or investment banks that have been around for years and years, what type of response do you normally get? We've learned it the hard way. I immediately coming from that background, wanted to take it to banks. And the problem is the incentives for driving efficiencies aren't the same in investment banks as corporates. An investment bank, you have these roles and you typically have a senior lead banker and his job is to go to the market and get engagements. That's the biggest thing. Then you have a team behind that of VPs, analysts, and associates that's job is to execute and do a lot of the tactical activities. When you look at the way they're incentivized, the efficiencies to get the net margins, most of them in a middle market or bulge bracket bank, those bankers are comped on the gross revenues they're bringing to the firm. They're not comped on the net revenues. So for them, there is no incentive to drive efficiency and look at these modern ways of doing that. I think that's part of the reason why that industry is behind is because folks aren't really working on a model that incentivizes efficiencies across the board. And then when you look at the other side, especially the analyst associate level, it's not a long-term game. Investment banking is a funnel for them and very few make it to the top. So a lot of times their view on their work is very short-term. They're looking to spend the year and clock out and go find a role in the buy side. You're fighting that and then we can talk for probably a while about the culture investment banking that just really doesn't lend or foster to innovation. It's very much a top-down management approach. The bottoms up is very non-existent. Obviously, the little cliche stereotypes about the working model there. All those factors lend to the stagnation and why the industry hasn't been moving forward or so adaptive to an agile M&A framework. We've primarily seen it from corporations where their corporate development teams that could be three to seven people, bigger, smaller, and they're pressed for dealing with the large structure where they have tons of people involved. They got to work with many functions and those leaders with external teams. They need to find a way to work efficiently across all these team members that they bring in. And this market's tough. It's a very competitive market. They're competing against these PE firms that are more nimble, that can move faster. And for those corporations, those large corporations, they need a, an agile model to even compete in this market that demands compressed timeframes. What would be a change in the culture, change in the incentives? How could an investment bank modernize or keep up to date with the changes of everything? It's a big thing to change culture. I think starting with incentives. If you can say, hey, if we can really incentivize more around the net results, the compensations tend to be pretty lucrative in an investment bank, especially at the top levels. If you start making some of those changes, you may be a little bit disruptive and 
may turn some people away to the other firms that are still following the traditional model. You got to be careful of those changes. People don't like their comps changed when it's good. If we can get the market to acknowledge that investment banks who follow an agile model produce better results, if that can become transparent, we work with investment banks. I can't say we've worked with one that's fully adopted a full agile M&A model, but they've adopted components of it. And we've seen that be really successful. It makes a lot of sense because we work with corporates that are managing divestitures internally. They're not using an investment bank. And we've seen the results we can produce there. It's very natural for an investment bank to get similar results. And a lot of times they're managing even more competitive processes. The efficiencies would actually be far greater. If you can really demonstrate that an investment bank emerges as having a competitive advantage by utilizing an agile-based approach and a good bank, a bank with a brand, and doesn't have to be one of the bulge back, even a mid-market bank, I think that would start getting the industry to start turning because we know it's competitive. We got to do a full-on bake-off process against five, six other banks. And it's a grueling process because your team does a lot of work to prepare for that pitch. And when you don't win it, it's all a wash. So if you can create a greater probability of winning those pitches by having a competitive advantage, yeah, by all means, I think banks would start changing their views and progress in adopting the modern way of doing deals. You'd mentioned having a successful outcome. What is needed for a successful agile process to happen in a merger acquisition? What are the components? Training is probably a big piece of it. Just having folks understand what it means, what the model is. And we can talk about how do you get there. There's how do you take a traditional team and move them to an agile-based team? Because there's a process there. But you definitely need to go through that where people are aware and understand how the model works. And you need to introduce it early. As soon as kickoff happens, you need to introduce it and even restate it. And if you are working with another party that may not be familiar with it, you want to introduce them to some of those core elements. And usually in the beginning, it's nothing more complicated than here's our backlog approach. Instead of creating a massive list and tagging things high priority and sending that to you and keep adding high priority till half the list is high priority and nobody knows what's the priority, we're going to keep a list in a descending order of priority that through this transaction, our list of requests are always going to be in this descending order. So whatever we need on the top is the most important thing. Always start from the top and work your way down. Google does this. This is one of the big things that they attribute to how they drive efficiency when they're running through diligence through a deal because they just can focus on the top 10, 15 items and it allows them to stay focused on the important stuff because a lot of times the stuff on the bottom relatively isn't that important. You're dealing with different functional leads that are pulling in lists from those different departments and consolidating it and people are busy, they're working full time. They're basically able to grab a list from the last deal they did and just send that out. You're lucky if they even took the time to look at it and groomed it a little bit for the deal they're looking at. So a lot of times the stuff's not even relevant. We actually looked at some data and found out of 20 to 40% on any given deal of requests that are answered, never get looked at. Get a lot of time spent on things that didn't need to be spent on. And it's a simple concept, right? Hey, we have a list. We're going to keep in descending order of priority. Can we just all agree that it's a working way of doing it? Joe and our team, he's going to take ownership of grooming the list. Once a week, he'll double check. He'll actually check in with your team to review the priority and just make sure that list is accurate because we're going to move things up as we need to. And that's it. We just keep working from the top down. And then you get through those important items. In fact, you can always reopen those items and iterate on them a lot quicker, keep very short sales cycle. 
In fact, we're going to not use Excel tracker because I don't want somebody to wait to go through 400 items, take four to seven days, email it back and forth. We're going to use a really good project management tool, not to put a plugin on our stuff, but any project management tool that allows you to drag, drop, and sort and keep that descending order priority would work because now we're working more in a real-time fashion. Now our turnover is happening daily, if not multiple times a day. We're going back and forth on these items and it allows us to move through that process a lot faster. So it's a pretty basic thing that you can introduce really early in that kickoff process. If we wanted to look at how do you actually move a team from a traditional to an agile approach, that's a, a little more work there. The first thing is mapping out the process understanding what your deal lifecycle looks like. And doing that, you should be able to identify who the key stakeholders are throughout that process or the key personas. Once you've identified that, the goal is to extract where the problems and pain points are. You want to understand like where does value get leaked in the M&A process? We do this through qualitative interviews. Really spend the time to do qualitative interviews with each of those personas and understand where the pain points and challenges are. Sometimes this is where it helps to have a third-party facilitator. A lot of times everybody's just busy internally working on deals and whatnot. I have them get in there to do those interviews and document it. I've done this with one of the large corp dev teams. They're one of the larger manufacturers. I took this information and basically had everybody come together on a roundtable. I had the whole corp dev function, the integration leads all together. I said, look, I, I got this list of all this stuff. And the only thing I want to do is just prioritize it. I want to be able to prioritize these pain points. So across the team, we're on the same page about what problems we're trying to solve. And it was such a great exercise, such a great level up for the team because they got to connect and understand like these are the big pain points the integration lead has. This is the big pain points that the manager, the quarterback of diligence has. This is the VP of corp dev. They just really helped create a lot of good energy, almost like empathy you're creating within the team for them to connect and bond better with each other. So it was just nice to be part of that and feel that. Once you do that exercise, some of the stuff's obvious. Some of the stuff's, okay, like here's a clear way we can solve that, fix it. Values generated right off the bat. Then from there, once you've got this list of problems to solve, you start looking at what, what can we do to solve it? And this is when you can start unpacking some of these agile approaches that you can map and say, hey, this would help actually solve that if we tried this. And, and the goal of doing this is, not trying to slam and change the whole process all at once, but build a roadmap where you can introduce a solution. Say, why don't we try this? This is the biggest problem. Let's focus on solving that one. We can introduce this technique or solution. There's a couple things we're trying to do here. One is ultimately when we look at agile and the basis objective of it is to create a change oriented culture. We want to get comfortable trying something new, assess, see if it works or not. If it doesn't, let's change it or let's throw it out and try something else. That is the number one goal you're trying to achieve is a change oriented culture. The second thing is creating a compelling reason for people to change. That's why we took the time to do these interviews, really get in and understand what problems and pain that you have and put it together as a group. So together, these are the problems we have. This is why we're going to make this change. And nobody likes to change for no reason. But they'll make that change when they can see there's some great outcomes to be achieved. You put these things together, creating this change-oriented, evolving your team into a change-oriented culture and giving them a compelling reason to make a change. That's what drives you to the agile approach because it's not a pure template that you apply. Every organization, even if you look at the software world, when you talk about agile, there are no two teams that apply the same way of doing agile. They all have 
a unique thing that's unique to their company, their configuration, the problems they're solving, and their culture. That's ultimately what your organization is going to strive for, creating something unique. But when you have that change run to culture, you're continuously improving. You've got this model and you'll keep getting better and better. That's how you're going to move from this old school, stodgy, traditional approach into something modern, fresh, people-focused that's going to move forward and produce much better results much faster too. Speaking of results, how impactful is poor process management in the deal? That could kill the whole deal right there. (laughs) We worked with corporates that are so old school where they literally don't do any integration, planning, preparation up until the deal closes. When that happens, your integration team is not set up for success. They are going to have to go back and re-diligence the deal all over again. They're going to have a delay in starting the integration process, which delays the value capture of the deal, which makes it a lot more difficult to navigate the change, drive the communication to get alignment from the company that you've acquired. You create a lot more FUD that lingers around and keeps people in that state where they're more likely to quit and move on. And with that, take a lot of value with them to make the deal a lot more vulnerable to losing value. And even within just having the poor process, that's when your communication goes south, the lack of collaboration, goals don't get achieved. When you can drive good level of collaboration, keep teams aligned on priorities, that's how you make M&A successful. That's the whole theme of this past decade, Sean. We're going from this finance-focused M&A approach where we model it out and build our great model with all these synergy assumptions, cost synergies, revenue synergies, and then benchmark against the end state. There's not a great comparison there to this people-focused M&A. From the very beginning of the deal, there's a greater emphasis on company values. So that allows each organization to understand their cultures, what's unique about their cultures, what the leadership approaches look like, how the companies are going to work together if they come together, potentially identify some stark differences that could lead to conflicts and issues early, maybe understand that there's a relatively high risk around how the people are going to work together and having consideration about how the integration is going to go, like taking the end state. Why are we doing this deal? What's the end state we're trying to achieve? Bring it to the front end of the deal process so that we can really socialize that with with the executives and start thinking about the go-to-market, bringing the integration lead up front to help outline that go-to-market and get that alignment so that the company that you're acquiring is bought into it. They know it's not just you're getting the check and you're out, but hey, we have to do this to achieve the value. We're going to need you to be able to do that. And then as they progress through the process and start doing diligence, at the start of diligence, you should create a work stream that runs in parallel with diligence to be able to create your integration plan in iteration. As you get information through the diligence process, you should be able to continuously get that information and continuously update your integration. And your deliverable will be your integration plan at close that should be comprehensive, thought out. And doing that also enables your functional leads to do both. They could do their diligence, look for risks in the deal, also identify opportunities and incorporate those opportunities into their integration plan. And at that time as well, with the the target company, is thinking of how you can encourage a reverse diligence. How do you get this target company to better understand the organization they're going to be getting integrated into and what that's going to look like, how their organization's set up, where they're going to fit in, get them prepared. 
get them bought in so that they know that they're part of it, keeping this level of transparency so that there's goals that end state that they know that they're part of it and that they can work towards it and that can work together as combined companies once the deal closes and really have that strong level of communication underpinning all of this that's most important is the focus on customers. Each respected organization is there to serve their customers. So through this is keeping in mind the customer experience, aligning around that on how the company is going to come together and best serve the customer. So this is a kind of a broad question. Why is integration so hard? Why is it so difficult? People. Change management. But we think about M&A, right? M&A is two things. It's the largest transactions in the world. A lot of folks, it tends to be the largest transactions they'll do. And it's in turn, the largest magnitude of change management. When you're acquiring a company, you're peeling back processes that have been created over in times, decades, and then reattaching it back on a parent organization. And that's very disruptive. Now we're seeing this big shift where we're going from these typical transactions where we acquire for scale, we buy factories, fixed assets to buying these sexy little tech companies for this technology. We're doing that to increase your company's capabilities. You're buying this technology in order to disrupt your own organization to be able to stay relevant. That is what's driving a need for the change in the way we do deals and be able to do it in a way where we're preserving value. Because if we're going to go through and do this kind of integration, make all these changes, especially if somebody's joined a startup for the value they're creating, what they're doing, the fast-paced environment, and now you're trying to change everything and put them in a large company full of bureaucracy a lot of processes, additional layers of governance, people aren't going to be happy. That's not what they signed up for. And now all of a sudden they want to leave. They get frustrated, they leave. And then the the very thing you purchased gets destroyed. The thing you bought it for, the people and the way they do things is what creates the value. That's what makes integration really hard. Can't template it. You can't just say, hey, this is how integration should work on all our deals. You're going to have varying degrees of integration based on the deal, what you're trying to achieve. That's a big thing. And the problems that this isn't a bunch of quantitative data we analyze. It's not like this whole crypto world and things like that about looking at, at a bunch of data sets, driving, finding out the, how we can make efficiency through algorithms. This is people issues. This is all people working together. It's different. It's about the, can we respect each other? Do we, do we have cultures that align? It's very much about the way of working, uh, stakeholder alignment. Sorry to cut you off, but I'm really curious about during that integration process, is there any hidden value that maybe companies haven't seen that they discover during this process or they pivot during this process or changes? Or is it just cut and dry? They follow that blueprint. That's the biggest challenge. You don't have all this information. Even when you go in the early parts of the deal, there's things that you just don't get access to, especially when we look at sensitivity around the HR information and things of that sort. There's things that you just don't get access to until you close. And then you move into to doing your integration work. So that becomes a challenge because now you're identifying, getting new information and acting on it. And that's where you may start uncovering some additional opportunities that you can create value and be able to extract that or incorporate to the plan. It's like the idea of I'm buying this company. I have all these assumptions on what I'm going to do to the company to create value. 
Then when you go through and start understanding the company, getting access to all this information, then you realize, wait a minute, this thing that they're doing is actually better than what we were doing. I just interviewed with James Harris at Google and he had a really good example of that where they were acquiring a company. And then after post-close, they realized they had a better manufacturing process than what they did at Google. But they ended up updating their integration plan, which is a nice thing that Agile allows you to do right on the fly and was able to capture the value of updating to their integration process as opposed to having them into Google's. Deal lead versus deal project manager. What's the difference between these two and what should one look for in each of these roles? You got somebody to quarterback diligence. This is a tend to work on the front of the process. And a lot of times it's a separate person that's managing integration. They tend to be the two different leads. Sometimes it depends on the size of your M&A function, the volume of deals you're doing, the size of the deal. You could have one person run both roles where they manage that deal process all the way through. But more often than not, they typically are two separate roles. The person on the diligence side they tend to be more evolved with the whole front end process, the valuation model, assumptions around synergies, being able to work with the various functional leads, validating that model, being able to be the quarterback, get their requests for diligence information that they need from the company, be able to consolidate it, get it over to the company to get the answers, distribute the responses back get the clarification questions that are going to come up, a lot of the back and forth. Another good reason why a project management tool like DealRoom helps a lot. That's what they're doing is that, that front of the process. Now, they should be starting to help with the integration planning. And this is when it's nice to have that kind of tool to have both happening at one time. We're doing our diligence, but we're also planning integration, both in the same box. Your integration leader should be involved as early as possible as well. You want them there to do the preparation, really do the preparation so they know what they're going to have to execute within the different functions. But the big thing is like the communication part where both of them need to work together. Usually there's a comms team to make sure that the communication's really thought out well. Because when we go back to what are the big risks, it's people, the fear and uncertainty that drives them in different directions, don't keep them aligned on goals. It doesn't keep them motivated. Do you want to have good communication that's well thought out, planned with the employees, the customers, the vendors, making it iterative where you're updating it as you go? That's going to be critical. At the end of the day, it's having heavy people are productive and create value. Angry, pissed off people, not productive, don't create value. You could potentially walk away with a lot of value. I mean, throughout that process, say it's going well or, or during it or after, how often should one be doing a retrospective of the deal? How often should this be done? A lot of times, teams will do a postmortem. The deal's done. Let's go look back at it, see what we learned from it. And those are tough because a lot of times you already have another deal you're working on right after it and, and you just focus on that. Retrospectives are nice because you can create this set cadence to have your team get together, talk about what's going well, what's not going well, what are some things that we can try to implement to make improvements. Those work well when they're on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. That way it becomes a regular cadence. If you look at even making small tweaks and improvements over the course of the year, because of the frequency of those meetings, it adds up to a massive amount of change and improvement. And then even before the deal closes, what questions should the integration team ask themselves? What questions should be asked during this time? <laughs> what go wrong? What's going to break? I think that's a big thing. There's a lot of questions to ask because one, there's a team that needs to be there to execute the deal. You need to understand who that's going to be, 
Because a lot of times you're using shared resources. You're picking up people from different functions and they're working full-time. So it's, hey, I need X percentage of capacity for this M&A deal. What if during the deal, for some reason, they're not, do you have a backup? So now you need to identify that. Then there's a whole governance around this. Are we creating a steering committee? And is that well thought out? Do we have the right stakeholders in that steering committee? Those things should be really thought about early in the process. As we go through integration, what are the things that are going to break when we do integration? Planning is such a critical component. And that's why there's a big emphasis on starting the planning as early as possible and really thinking through these scenarios of what's going to break and go wrong. Let's say nothing breaks, deal closes, integration's considered done one day after. What? That's when you worry about all the things breaking. <laughs> There's a lot of things that need to get executed. There's a whole day one activity list. A lot of times you want to make your announcements, start making the changes as quick as possible. If you're replacing brands, signage, emails, things of those sort, depending on the sales structure, if you're doing an asset or purchase sale, you're going to have to make a lot of changes with the employment side moving people's benefits around and, and things of that sort. So it's, it's important. You just got to have a good leadership team that's on deck, ready to do it. And a lot of communication, how you're communicating, if you're running town halls, I guess not a lot of virtual calls to be able to address the deal, answer the questions. When you don't answer the questions, people will come up with their own answers. They're going to make things up and just think the worst. So you got to be there to have a good message about the deal and create the assurance. I think with the company too, they didn't choose to come work for this organization that they acquired. And when they first sign up for a company, you go through an interview process, you made a choice. When you get acquired, now you have a new employer and you didn't make a choice. It takes a lot of work and communication to show them that you're committed to them and the goals that you want to achieve together. That's like a big part is that communication and emphasize it enough and making sure you have the right leaders in place that can be there to help facilitate the necessary change and decisions. The other part of integration is decision-making. That There's so many decisions to make when you actually start picking things apart and putting them together that you need to have a good approach on that. And this is where companies that they, their culture is to be slow at decision-making. It's not going to work well when it comes to integration. You're going to have to move quickly. With integration too, you want to move fast. So it's a, essentially rip the Band-Aid off, try to get through this change that's painful as quick as you can and move on to the greener state. And then with your career, going from working on deals to deciding to start your own company, what inspired you? What was that trigger to take action to do the pivot? I got burnt out doing banking, jumping around deal for deal. It's just every deal you get and you start over and you're hunting around. And I enjoyed the work. I love the hunting. I love doing the buy side advisory part, especially. But going through the recession back in 07, and it was brutally hard. I was so interested in technology. I felt it was more aligned with my personal career goals, where I wanted to go. What really drove me that way was knowing that even some of the solutions that we started developing in our own firm, to be able to build solutions that we can then scale across to other firms and just help more and more companies be able to make an impact in the industry as a whole. That's what excited me about moving out of firm practice to build a company to provide solutions across the many firms that are executing on M&A deals. And with that, what lays ahead for the next couple of years with what you're working on? I and mean, where are we going to see Kisan Patel in the next two to three, five years? 
We have a great foundation. We have a great platform where we've created technology and educational solutions. Next is to build our capabilities to help organizations operationalize this model that we create and really make the change and impact in the industry. We got something good going. We get a lot of interest from different firms that want to invest, acquire, but we just started. We've literally just started and understanding the opportunity in this industry. And over the past decade, we've created this capability to help drive efficiency in M&A to not only get deals done faster, but produce much better outcomes. And we want to take this capability and help as many corporations as we can optimize their M&A process so they can see far greater outcomes. And at the end of the day, create a better people experience for all of those involved. Because people shouldn't have to go through an M&A and that's the top 10 fear of life and it disrupts them. They got to quit their job and find something new and it becomes so disruptive. It should be a much more positive experience because M&A always starts with this grand vision to create value, but a lot of times ends up with disruption and the loss of value that people should be able to align through that journey and be collaborative, stay focused on the goals and join together and actually create more value, amplify it, create exponential growth. There's a lot of changes that could happen in the industry for a greater good that's going to generate a lot more value and opportunities for the industry as a whole. We want to be part of that. We want to help foster that. We've done a lot of the homework and research in the first 10 years of building this company. So in the next 10 years, it's all about delivering this capability to organizations so they can see the results from it. And if anyone wants to learn more about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? MAScience.com. We have over 350 published blogs, eBooks, content, and it's a great platform just to learn, share what we learn and continue learning from others in the industry. Fantastic. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And I want to thank Jim Schiebler, who made the warm introduction that allowed today's episode to take place. And for all our listeners out there, after you've listened to this one, two, maybe three times, because the more you listen, the more information you're going to get, please leave us a review on iTunes, any other podcast platform. Please share amongst your network. Please connect with me on LinkedIn at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. All our social media handles are The Silicon Valley Podcast, website, thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And with that, Kisan, I want to thank you one more time for being a guest today on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.